Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Savor this moment. That's the purpose of what an opera is called an aria. An aria. And I'm going to sound way fancier here than I actually am. Don't worry, I looked all this stuff up on Wikipedia. Okay? So an aria is a solo vocal piece in an opera or in an oratorio, like Handel's Messiah has arias as well. And the, the purpose of the aria is that it comes right as the story is reaching a crescendo, as we're just about to hit the climax of the narrative. An aria will break in, this solo vocal piece, in order to help us savor that moment. Like right before we go into that high point, let's just take a pause and appreciate all that has happened and all that has, has brought us to this point. Now, why do I bring this up? Because Mary's song is a kind of an aria of the gospel, an overture of the good news. Here, as we're just about to reach this high point of the, the coming of Christ Jesus in the flesh, suddenly we have this, this moment of pause as Mary intones with her wonderful song, her aria of the gospel, which helps us to meditate upon the mystery of the man, the God-made flesh. And I think it's such an opportune time for us to ponder this mystery, to, to take some time and listen to this aria of the gospel and Mary's song, and, and that for many reasons. But for one thing, I don't know about you, but it feels like time just keeps speeding up. This is a complaint of all of us as we get older, right? Time just keeps going faster and faster. It's the weirdest thing. But I would say especially during Christmas time. I mean, it's the fourth Sunday of Advent already. I hope you guys have already done all your gifts and shopping and everything. This year, it seems like they were telling you, you better you know, order all of your gifts by December 1st or it's not going to come in time for Christmas, right? Things just keep speeding up. This aria of the gospel, Mary's song, is a chance for us to pump the brakes a little bit, to pause time, if only for a moment, and to linger here. And that's my, my goal for us this morning. And that's the invitation that Mary's song has for us, to take some time just to ruminate and to relish on the season, yes, but on this, this mystery of the God-made flesh. It's a chance to savor the Savior and this glorious good news. So what I want to do is just kind of walk through the song a little bit, and I invite you to um, pull out your worship folder if you like, as we're just going to kind of touch on not every part of the song, but I want to highlight some of the particular pieces of it and how it leads us deeper into this glad good news. So first of all, Mary starts with this kind of cannonball of praise and joy, just Wow. Reminiscent of the Psalms and also the, the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary is just overflowing with joy and excitement. She is effusive with all of this praise. And why is that? Why is she so filled with joy right here? And, and why now? Well, first of all, the reason that she is filled with so much joy is because God has looked on her. He has regarded her in her low estate. Now, who was Mary? Mary was a nobody, right? Mary was just a young peasant girl. She was probably 15, 16 years old. 
just from some backwater. She had no real prospects. She couldn't anticipate some life when she was going to be rich and famous. She was a person of low estate. And yet God has not overlooked her, but to the contrary, he has looked over her. He has looked upon her. He has regarded her. And Luther says that this regarding of Mary is the greatest of all his works, which is indeed the one from which all the rest depend and from which they all derive, Luther says. Because God has looked on lowly Mary and said, you, Mary, you matter. You matter historically more than you could ever possibly imagine. And that first and foremost is why Mary is rejoicing. But why not? Why doesn't Mary's song, why doesn't she, she uh, belt out this song immediately after hearing the annunciation from the angel? Why does it take her a while? Why does she have to go all the way over to Elizabeth and have this encounter with her cousin before finally she's like, oh wait, I've been coming up with this, I've been working this through a little bit, I wanted to workshop it with you, Elizabeth. This song, this poem that I've got, what do you think? I think the reason is this. You can only imagine the uncertainty that Mary must have been feeling, how she must have been just riddled with anxiety, wondering like, okay, I think I saw an angel. I'm pretty sure I had this pronouncement, but is this for real, right? Like, am I really seeing, hearing, believing this? And so she goes to Elizabeth, and lo and behold, Elizabeth, who's much older than she is, Elizabeth is with child. And not only that, but Elizabeth immediately speaks this word of blessing over Mary. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the the fruit of your womb. She speaks this kind of beatitude over Mary. And think about how significant this is in that moment. Because it's almost like now Mary has this objective assurance, right? She has this external verification of what she has received, of the promise that God has made to her. It's not just in her own head, right? Right? But now she has also seen and heard it out of the mouth of another. I often quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer in this regard, who says that the Christ in my brother, the Christ in my sister, is stronger than the Christ in me. What he means by that is that we need this kind of external affirmation, this objective confirmation of God's work in and through every one of us, because we all are prone to these sorts of doubts, and uncertainties. And so think about this, how you serve as Elizabeths for the sake of one another. See, Every single one of us, like Mary, are bearing Christ in our bodies. All of us who are baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, now you are little Christs. You carry Jesus to the world. But every single one of us also has those uncertainties and anxieties, like, really? Me? Lord, I think that maybe you need to regard somebody else. We serve as Elizabeths for one another to say, no, God has called you. He has equipped you. He is using you in my life and in the life of others. And so it's just like that Christmas carol that we sing, do you hear what I hear? You're supposed to echo me with that. Okay, but we're all kind of posing that question, even implicitly, tacitly. And we're able to say for one another, as Elizabeth's to each other, yes, I hear what you hear. Yes, I see what you see. You haven't taken crazy pills, right? You bear in your body our Lord Jesus as well. That's reason to rejoice like Mary. The song goes on from there. As we said, there's that beatitude, that blessing that Elizabeth speaks, and now 
Mary is going to speak words that echo the Beatitudes. She says, going on in verse, uh, let's see, 51 and following, she says, he has shown strength. God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, this is a classic expression of what theologians call the great reversal of the gospel. The great reversal of the gospel. And what is the great reversal? It's the way that God turns upside down the world's ways, the world's wisdom, the world's expectation. And instead, in and through his kingdom, his royal reign, now he is doing things in this upside down, reversal backwards kind of way. We see this over and over again in the gospel, in the ways that God works, in the, the people that he chooses, even as he chose Mary. And Mary now gives voice to that. Even as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the, the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, who hunger. Now, Jesus says, those are the ones who are regarded as first and foremost in the kingdom of God. Those whom the world regards as last and little, lost and least. It's just like what the prophet Micah said in our Old Testament reading today. Prophesying where Jesus was going to come from. But you, O Bethlehem, even though you are littlest among all the tribes of Judah, out of you shall come forth this king. It's the way that God works. But you, O Arcadia, Bear Lake, brethren in Calava, out of you, though little you might be, comes forth the mighty work of God present in our midst. This is the great reversal of our Savior, operating sub contrario, under the opposites, in ways that confound and counter all of the world's wisdom and ways. And, you know, throughout this season of Advent and Christmas, I love to do kind of the greatest hits of all the, the Christmas movies, right? I think we had, what, National Lampoons a couple of weeks ago. We had Christmas Story this week, this week, or last week, this week. I've got to go back to Charlie Brown, right? Because this is the essential insight. Yeah, I got an amen over there. This is the essential insight of the Charlie Brown Christmas, isn't it? You think about Charlie Brown. Who is Charlie Brown? He's like Mary. He's a nobody, right? He is a man of low estate, of if ever there was one. He is the Charlie Browniest, right? And then Charlie Brown finally gets this opportunity. He's going to be the director of the play. And then he's given one job. Charlie Brown, you had one job. Go and get an awesome Christmas tree. So he goes to the Christmas tree farm where they're all made out of aluminum. Can't we all just be glad that we never reached that point? You know, Charles Schultz was kind of prophesying that we were going to have the aluminum Christmas trees. That has not come to pass. I'm thankful for that. He's got one job, Charlie Brown does. Get a great tree. And what does he come back with? Just this piddling little Bethlehem of a tree. Look what you did, Charlie Brown. All you had to do was get a good tree. And this is what you got. But this is the great reversal of the gospel. That that little, ugly, good-for-nothing tree suddenly becomes something glorious. Linus looks on it, he regards it, and says, you know, I never thought it was such a bad little tree. And the next thing you know, that humble little thing suddenly becomes this glorious picture of Christmas good news. Hark the herald angels sing. So, so it is 
in the good news of the gospel. Our Lord Jesus, who looks as the last, the little, the lost one, who's born in a manger, who goes to the humblest, the most ignoble of places, who goes to the cross. The Lord looks on him in that low estate and raises, his own, raises him up and glorifies him. And so he does for each and every one of us. Even though we might feel like those Charlie Brown trees, the Lord looks on you and says, No, you are glorious. This is the way that God works. If you look for him constantly in the victor's circle, you won't find him there because he instead, he is the Lord of the low places. He is the savior of the small. That's where he meets us. Psalm 34, 18 says that God brings his blessing to the brokenhearted. And in Isaiah 57, he says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, for I save the crushed in spirit. It's good news for you and me, because if we're honest, that's where we live most of our lives, in the low places in the broken places. And you have a savior of the valleys who dwells with you there and who exalts you to his own right side. One last part I want to draw your attention to in Mary's song, in the last couple of verses. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Here, Mary situates her song, situates herself in this much larger story of God's dealings, of his promises back to Abraham and to all of the fathers. And I think Mary would say even back further to Adam and to Eve. And so it brought to my mind this wonderful picture that you have on the front of your worship folder. Maybe you grab the, the color one on your way in. We might have some more back there as well. It's a simple, I don't even think it's painted, I think it's like color pencil drawing by a nun named Grace Remington, and the, it's entitled Mary and Eve. And there's a lot in this little picture, but I want to draw your attention to just a couple of things. First of all, how they're against this golden backdrop, this light that's shining behind them, and they're placed, as it were, in a kind of arch. And symbolically, the arch is the symbol of history. It's these two sides that are all now coming together and they meet in the middle, right overhead between Mary and Eve. And if you follow down vertically from that spot, as Mary's own dress leads us to, it's all pointing to that great big belly of Mary. Because there in Mary's belly, she carries the hinge of history, the one in whom the hopes and fears of all the years are met. And even the, that arch is formed by what I'm told is fig leaves. The fig leaves, leaves reminiscent of the garden. Adam and Eve trying to, to cover up their nakedness, cover up their, their shame and their sin as even Eve herself in the painting is still clinging to that apple with the one hand. The way that all of us still cling to our sin, have such a hard time forgetting that God has forgiven us. But with that other arm outstretched, she reaches and touches the hand or, and the belly of Mary in which she carries the Savior of the world, the one that sets her and you and me free. So that finally we look down at the bottom as Eve's legs are intertangled, intertwined with the serpent. But you notice that serpent is underneath the foot 
of Mary as we have that promise all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 that a seed of Eve, one coming after her, would crush the serpent's head. So it is that in our Lord Jesus, the one who is the fulfillment, the climax of this story, there it all crescendos to the coming of Christ. He is the one who crushes that serpent's head. The child born of Mary is the one who has that final defeat over the devil. This is the, the story of which you and I, as sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, this is the story of which you and I have been made a part, that now you have been drafted into the kingdom of God. You have been grafted into the tree of life of our Lord Jesus. You have been made part of that story. So that even now, year by year, as we celebrate Christmas, we're looking forward to its final consummation and fulfillment when Christ comes again. One philosopher says that hope is memory plus desire. And each year we carry forth this memory of our Lord's first coming, even as we have that desire for his second coming when he will put all things right. Listen, time moves so swiftly. Christmas comes and passes like a passing snowstorm. And it's always a danger that it passes us by all too quickly, or worse yet, that we lose the thread of this larger story that you and I have been made part of. That story that's able to contextualize all of our struggles, all of our trials, all of our tears. Now we see they have been gathered up in the book of our Lord. So stay here for a minute. Listen to Mary's song. Meditate on this mystery. Savor the Savior. For behold, He is coming soon. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to sing the offertory.